Hi, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two Golden Age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed for you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a train headed for Calcutta and an exciting tale of the most sought-after emerald in the world. As Richard Sale tells it in his famous story, Figure a Dame. You do it. You figure a dame. Take this Mrs. Arthur Bankner, whose body I'm hired to guard. A widow woman who wanted a piece of green ice so bad she came halfway across the world to this Raj Johor, this whistle stop in the middle of India. And then to the winter palace of a character named Samurai Dal. Him and his English jodhpurs, jeweled silk turban, his eyes like hard pennies. Him I didn't like. The star of Kilimanjaro. It has finally brought you to me. What, Mrs. Bankner? Oh, yes, Samari <laughs> Dahl. Uh, is that how I call you, or is it Mr. Dahl? However you call me, madame, will be satisfactory when you pay me the $150,000 we agreed upon. Uh, American dollars. <laughs> Give him the money, Joe. I can't wait any longer. Oh, I think I've lived my life for this moment. First, we look at the emerald, huh, Mrs. B? But Mr. Dahl wouldn't... Oh, Joe, it's not done that way. This is India. Different customs, different manners. How true, Mrs. Bankner. First, we look at it. An old Brooklyn custom. Huh, Sam? Of course. Samari, doll. The Emerald. The star of Kilimanjaro. Fetch it, girl. At once, Samari, doll. Hmm... Goes good with you, huh, Sam? Dancing girls with bells on their toes? It's only adequate. I, uh, neglected to ask you this, Mrs. Bankner. Forgive me, but just who is this creature? Joe? Oh, he's not a creature, Mr. Dahl. He's, uh, well, for one thing, he's a detective for the Magnum Insurance Company. That explains a great deal. You see, Mr. Dahl, uh, Joe, uh, Mr. Harriman here, recovered some jewelry I lost in Paris. Oh, I was so impressed with him. I, I mean, with how efficient he was. And oh, yeah, I she didn't... means she persuaded Magnum to let me come along on this little buying trip for protection. Magnum thought it was a good idea, too. Now you know who the creature is. Now everything's gay, huh, Sam? Samari, doll. Thank you. You may go back, girl, to whatever child's game you are playing. <laughs> I could weep at having to part with this. Here, the star of Kilimanjaro. Oh, oh, Joel, Joel, look at it, look. Oh, all my life, many, many jewels, but oh, none like this. None. Yeah, 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 oh. it's, it's something. It'll do. Oh. You are satisfied, Joe? Yeah. And you, Mrs. Bankner, it satisfies you? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> then it remains only for me to be satisfied. Uh, give him the money, Joe. Give it to him. Yeah, okay. Okay, here, Sam. You can count it if you want to. I want to. Oh, exquisite. 
exquisite, exquisite mummy. Uh, good. Oh, Mrs. Bankner. Uh, yes? If, uh, by some grave misfortune, you should lose the Star of Kilimanjo, or, uh, more exactly, it be stolen from you, then please to refer the thief to me. I shall be happy to buy it back from him at a good price. Mrs. B wanted to celebrate, so we went to the town's one hot spot, the Rossatal. It was a dive. And the props hadn't changed from Flatbush. Smoke, oriental cigarette type, bartender, oriental type, dames, any type. Complete with Lendley's jazz band, the joint was a sure-leave paradise with one great big advantage. No local ordinances. You name it, you can have it. <laughs> oh, I'll have another swizzle, Joe. Finish the drink you've got, and we'll see. Oh, Joe, you, you don't have to be so, so solicitous. <laughs> oh, I've got the star of killing Marshall. I've got it, Joe, and, and we're celebrating, remember? Come on now, dance with me. Joe. Joe, what are you staring at? Joe. Her. Who, Joe? That girl over there, the one against the bar. She looks like an American, that one. Yeah. She's lovely. I only say that because she is. Now, you've looked at her, Joe. Now look back at me. You know what? I've seen her before. Hmm. Flatbush. Uh-uh, here in India. A couple of times before. I look up and there she is, leaning against a bar or watching the same rope trick or being a part of the same crowd as me. She's following you, Joe, to the ends of the earth. And I bet her resistance is getting lower from bar to bar. Following me, yeah. I, uh, I heard you say something about dancing, lady. Well, no. They're arresting you from the poop deck, sailor boy. Beat it. Oh, Joe, at least buy him a drink. Buy him nothing. Go on, sailor, make an exit while the house is still with you. I was saying to you, lady, uh, I was saying I heard you want to dance. This guy with you ain't made a move. Now, what would you have done? Tell me. Me? Me? I'd dance. Yeah, yeah, you would. What? What has happened here? The jolly tar, he happened. Get him out of here. Oh, yes, yes, I... I mean, Tohan, this man on the floor. Out! have hit him, but... <laughs> Joe, I, I liked watching you do it. And I'm with the same mind. Ah, it was a beautiful thing. Oh, you too, mister? You want to play too? No, my boy, no. I know an Irish right cross when I see one, so I, I brought you both drinks. My pleasure. Why, thank you. <laughs> I am not Irish. You may not know it, son, but you are. You know, someplace on your tree there's an Irishman. Uh, do you mind if I uh, sit down? Who are you? What's the right... A man like you, son. I can tell it by the turn of your lips. A seeker, you might say. After what now? A woman's smile? Ah. And there's that here in India. Fortune? There's that here, too. Things, that's what. Without the Irish poetry, who are you? Rafferty. John Rafferty. Now, we're happy to know you, Mr. Rafferty, even for just this moment. We're leaving now. Ah, uh, sleep. We'll need it. The train to Calcutta leaves early tomorrow. And so it does. Then this is not goodbye after all. For I'll be on that train myself. Sleep, I'd said. For the widow with the emerald, maybe, but not for me. I sat on the veranda of the Rajohor Ritz just outside Mrs. B's room, and I could hear her making happy moans in her sleep. Once I heard a crawling noise, I got up, investigated, and found it was a noise made by something that crawls. Then came the dawn. I hustled Mrs. B and her bags into a Model T cab that took two hours to get to the railroad station a mile away. That I'd counted on, so we made the train for Calcutta on time. Oh, Joe, just think, in a few days, Calcutta. Then the plane, then Paris, and then you leave me. Yeah, that's how it was laid out, the itinerary. Go on in, I'll be there in a minute. Well, but uh, aren't you coming with me? No, Mrs. B, you go find your compartment. I'll bring the bags to you. Oh, but... Oh, oh, I see. The bar girl. That's who it is, isn't it, Joe? Coming this way. That's who it is, Mrs. B. You won't want to be here when I talk to her, huh, Mrs. B? No. No, no but don't talk long, Joe. It's me that's paying you, remember? 
So Mrs. B was on her way to her compartment. The star of Kilimanjo and a little pouch with gold strings around her neck and inside her dress. This was the last lap. If anyone was going to lift the rocket, it had to be done before we got to Calcutta. And then the girl's perfume was inside me. We've met before, haven't we? Where or when, I don't know, but we've met. It's as good a way as any to get to know me. I'm Joe Harriman. Marion Ryder. It seems we're always in the same places. On the train all the way from Bombay at the cafe last night here. Coincidental, isn't it? Is it? I wouldn't know. Well, of course it is. Wait, do you mean you've been following me? A dream like you that makes you hungry inside? It wouldn't be hard. Like that? Like that. Traveling for your health, Marion? No, business. In this slop hole, something like you, business? Well, I... I'm a kind of buying agent for a New York firm. Trinkets. That's it, trinkets. Emerald trinkets? Emerald would be lovely. I must find my compartment, Mr. Harriman. Maybe I'll see you again later? Count on it, Marion. It's a promise I make to myself. All aboard! All aboard! I didn't see her again until later. I sat in my own compartment next to Mrs. B's and did a lot of thinking. Important thinking, and I didn't want it mixed up with her perfume. Maybe she was an out-and-out jewel thief, and that bothered me. She was a cinch to get caught if she tried to lift that stone. And you can't make that good, good time with a girl who's behind bars. I did my thinking like that for a long time. Had a couple of meals in between, and read, and did some more thinking. When I got finished with it, I was looking out of a window and seeing it was a night without moon. A night for company. I walked down to the club car and found what I was looking for. Hello. Hello, Miss... Oh, oh don't be frightened. It's me. That, uh, kind of night out there get you done? No. I was just toying with my memory. Sit down, Joe. Oh, thank you. Toy with your memories some more. It wears wonderful on you. And then tell me about it. All right. Now shall I tell you about it? Uh-huh. Out there, Joe, the night, the black hills, those strange little lights that flicker and swirl past you. It's like... Well, like I wasn't on this train at all, but out there and, and part of it. Like something I've known and remembered for a long, long time. Is that all? That, Joe. This? Oh, Joe, Joe. Don't say we shouldn't have done it because we should have. I know, but what must you think of me? What? I'll tell you. Because I level with women who level with me. I think you're interested in me. And? And trinkets. Expensive trinkets. Like the star of Kilimanjo. I don't understand you. Mr. Harriman. Please, come hurry. Mrs. Bankner. What's the matter with her? She is very upset. I think something is wrong. She says you come right away. She's crying. Excuse me, Marion. I gotta go to work. Come on, you. Yes. Mrs. B. Mrs. B, something wrong? Oh, oh, Joe. Oh, Joe, I had a nightmare and I woke up. I was, I was so frightened. No. All right, conductor, thank you. You can go now. Yes, sir. I, I called for you when I woke up, but you weren't there. Oh, Joe. Sit here and put your arms around me. Oh, Joe, hold me tight. Yeah. Oh, oh it, it's better like this. You... Close to me like this. Uh-huh. Oh, look at me, Joe. What do you see? You're so helpless, I could... I could kiss Try you. Try me, Joe. Yeah. Joe. Joe, you're, you're hurting me. Joe, what, what... Joe! Her throat was soft against my hands. Her arms waved around for a little while... The look in her eyes was something I had never seen before. She didn't struggle much. She didn't do anything much. Except not believe it was happening to her. That she was being murdered. Then she quit believing anything. 
she was dead. In just a moment, we will continue with Escape. But first, every Wednesday night, Groucho Marx, Bing Crosby, and Burns and Allen in one, two, three order on most of these same CBS stations. Hear them all tomorrow night on CBS. And now we return you to the second act of Escape. There wasn't much trouble falling asleep after that, after I was sure Mrs. B was dead, and after I'd stashed the emerald where it couldn't be found. Wasn't much trouble falling asleep at all. Like being out with a beautiful dame, and she liked you. And you went home and put your arms behind your head and smiled to yourself. And you slept the best kind of sleep of all. It got to be 8 o'clock in the morning, and that was all right, too. Because there I was having breakfast in the diner with another promise I'd made to myself. Her name was Marion Ryder. And she poured my coffee for me. I've been thinking, Joe. Uh-huh. I've been thinking it was wrong what we did last night. I'll tell you why it wasn't, Marion. You want to hear? Just... Just don't lie to me. I'm crazy about you. See, I don't even have to look down into my coffee cup when I say it, like you're doing. I'm sorry. It's just that... Hey, wait a minute, honey. Ah, uh, conductor. Hey, come here a minute, you. Yes? What is it you wish, sir? I wish this... I wish that you would go down to Mrs. Bankner's compartment to wake her up. Tell her this mush you waiter serve for breakfast is lousy, but tell her she's got to get some food in her. Yes, sir. Well, don't just stand there. I wish it, so do it. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Joe. What are we saying, honey? Don't call me honey. Why not? It's a word I don't care for. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. No class, huh? Sure, wait till we get to Calcutta. I'll find the words it'll fit. Joe. Leave me alone now. But... Calcutta is only a few hours away, Joe. Sure, I know about dames, Marion. They need thinking time to make everything right with themselves. Sure. I'll see you later. Morning, my boy. Morning to you. Morning. Oh, hello, Mr. Rafferty. Have you had your breakfast yet? Yes, don't remind me of it. Oh, oh you come along and have a coffee with me then. Mm -mm, thank you, but uh, no. Oh, by the way, my boy, uh, Mrs. Bankner. What about her? Well, nothing about her, but... Uh, I'm in the next compartment to hers, and I heard the conductor knocking on a compartment door just now, and uh, she doesn't seem to answer. Oh, she sleeps heavy. Oh, well, she's lucky. Well, I'll see you later. Yeah. Mrs. Bankner? Breakfast, Mrs. Bankner? Uh, what's the matter, conductor? She doesn't answer. I've been knocking. Oh, yes, sometimes she does that. Have you got a key to the door? Yes, but... Open it. <laughs> Very well. Holy! Something is... Yes, something is all right. Come on in. Close that door. Look at her, will you? Something is... You said that. She's dead. I'll tell you something else. The lady's been murdered. You said... I said murdered. Look at the marks on her throat. Strangled. Sir. Sir, her hand. Please, she is holding something in her hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she is at that. A button. Perhaps the man who did this thing to her. His button. That's a real good, perhaps... Come on. Not a word about Mrs. Bankner to anybody, you understand? Yes, but... I'm a detective. I know about these things. Not a word. Come on. When do we get to Calcutta? In three hours, noon. First stops are for water. A five-minute stop at a village, Mipirai, then Calcutta. As soon as we get there, telegraph to Calcutta to the police. Tell them what's happened. And that's all. You understand? Yes. Well, now we go in here. In here. But this is Mr. Rafferty's compartment. Yes, the guy who did it. Close the door. I think he got what he was after from Mrs. Bankner. Maybe we'll find it. There will be trouble. You are searching his things. I told you I'm a detective. I know how to operate. Now, let's try this closet. Let me see. Oh, nothing here. But the button... I'll give it to you. I'll turn it over to the British police when we get to Calcutta. Here, take it. Yes, but the button in Mrs. Bankner's hand was brown. Gray. Can't you see the button is gray? Take it. 
We stood there staring at each other for maybe a minute, and then his eyes eased off mine. He made a kind of sloppy salute. He turned, went down the train corridor to wherever it is conductors hold their heads in their hands. It had been awful close, awful tight. Tearing a gray button off Rafferty's coat while I searched it and palming the button off on the conductor, that was a little task that took delicacy and timing. So I'm delicate with my fingers and my sense of timing is perfect and I'm sure of myself. And that adds up to a win. When we hit the water stop, I got off to stretch my legs to let myself breathe the fresh air so it would cool me off inside. The little guy running like a monkey on top of the water tank looked neat and clean in his white diaper and green turban. The hills covered with snow looked good, far away, but good. And then an Irish mosquito buzzed in my ear. That's oh, a lovely panorama, those hills. Lovely. It's like music. Flutes and bells and a flight of birds. Yeah, yeah, they're like that. I don't know the words to the music, but they're like that. It's a pity Mrs. Bankner isn't here to enjoy them with you. What about Mrs. Bankner? What about Mrs. Bankner? Well, why, she's dead. Murdered. Surely you knew that, my boy. How did you find out about it? Oh, you know how it is on a train. Things get themselves whispered about. How did you find out? Now, easy, boy, easy. You're a fiery one, are you not? It's only that I saw the conductor looking sad, and me being a kind of friendly, friendly human being, and smart enough to know conductors know things, I asked him why he was sad. Asked him in a way that made it easy for him to answer. Quicker, Rafferty, get to it quicker. Well, he told me that you told him not to say a word about the murder. And I said, who's murder? And then he says, Mrs. Bankner's, and I said, oh. And he said he'd be disgraced because it happened on his train. What else, Rafferty? And the matter of the button was deeply puzzling to him. Button? Yes. The button. Now, isn't that a queer thing to be puzzling to him? Him with a murder on his hands. The train got going after that. Me too. My brain, that is. Things going around in my brain. Everything got mixed up with that crummy little button and that crummy little conductor. Imagine a guy so scared he had to shoot his mouth off like that and shoot it off to Rafferty of all people. Conductor needed a little talking to, a finger waved under his nose. And the way it happened, I was standing on the observation platform by myself, and he came right up to me. Mr. Harriman? I beg your pardon, Mr. Harriman. Yeah? I beg your pardon, Mr. Harriman, but lunch is being served in the diner. An early lunch. We shall be in Calcutta in an hour. Come here, you. I beg your pardon. I said, come here. You wish it? Uh-huh. You know something? You look worried. Because I am. Why? This whole affair. The murder and the... Button. That, sir. And the other thing. You say Mr. Rafferty is the murderer. I told you not to talk to him. I told him hardly anything. I didn't tell him he was suspect. Oh, it's good you didn't. Real good for you, you didn't. Just let Rafferty coast, you understand? Then when we get to Calcutta, the police will arrest him because you've got the evidence. The button. I've got it. Only... Only what? Only I thought it was brown. You did, huh? It was brown. You sure of it? It was brown. When it was in Mrs. Bankner's hand, it was brown. When you gave it to me in Mr. Rafferty's compartment, it was gray. See, I have it here. It is gray. Yeah, I'll take it. Sir? Give it to me. Thank you. Now, you know what? It was brown. Yeah, it was. But I'm saying something. I'm saying, you know what? Sir? I'm saying you've got to go. You really got to go. Sir, what are you doing? Right now you've got to go. Sir, it was great. No, no, no! Now everything was right. Everything in place. The button I had had proved Rafferty the murderer of Mrs. B. The conductor? Everybody would say the poor guy had a bad accident. Now all it needed was the payoff to a dream. And that would be something named Marion Ryder. Who is it? It's Joe. I'm bringing you pretty flowers. Let me in. I don't see any flowers. You will. Shut the door, Marion. All right. Keeps twisting around inside me. I love you. You can't say things like that. Stop me. Anne. Like this, Joe. <sighs> Like that? One of those things. I meet you, bang. 
Electricity, just like that. Joe, Joe. I love you. I'd do anything for you. I never said that to a woman Joe, before. Joe, wait. I've got to tell you something first. What's to tell me? That you're a crook? That you followed me and Mrs. B so you could lay your hands on the star of Kilimanjaro? No, no, Joe, wait. You're too late, kid. Mrs. B is dead, murdered, the emerald's gone. Something wrong, kid. Oh, so much. So much. Oh, nothing is wrong. Rafferty, the Irish poet, is going to take the rap for it. He was after the emerald, too, but he's not getting it. Just the gallows. That's all Rafferty Joe, gets. listen to me. Stop talking and listen. No, kid, you listen to me. I get 50 grand for it. We'll take it back to Samurai Dahl and sell it to him again. 50 grand, you and me. We can die from so much joy. I killed her for you. You? You killed Mrs. Bankner? You murdered her? Sure. Kid, it wasn't hard. You mean that much to me, so it wasn't hard. It was almost a pleasure. A down payment on our happiness, you might call it. Oh, you spoiled everything, everything. Oh, Joe, you poor fool. Marion, is that right, Joe? You're such a fool. Get out of here, Rafferty. No tricks, lad. This gun I hold makes holes in people. You're people, aren't you, Joe? Or are you? What do you want here? Tell me before I go for my gun, I do foolish things like that. I don't doubt it. But first I'll tell you, lad. I know how you planted a murder on me with a button from my coat. And I know where the star of Kilimanjaro is. So you're nothing but a filthy, stinking jewel thief, just like I figured. Not quite, Joe. Marion, tell him how I know these things. Tell him who I am. He's the chief of the Magnum Insurance Company agents in Bombay. Rafferty, you're crazy. No. Magnum cabled him to follow you and Mrs. Bankner to make sure the emerald got back safely. Magnum didn't trust you with a stone like that. They put another man on to make sure you wouldn't steal it. And you had to kill her. They can't prove it. I'll pin it on Rafferty, so help me. But you killed her. You just admitted. Only to you. Your word isn't worth dust. You're a crook yourself. No. Not quite. Marion? All right, I'll tell him. Joe? I happen to be Rafferty's wife. She said it. It only took her a couple of seconds, but that's what she said. But it took a long time for the words and the sound to get to me. And you know something? Looking at her then, and watching her mouth move, she looked real sad, and suddenly real lonely. You do it. You figure a dame. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Figure a Dame by Richard Sale, adapted for radio by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. Featured in the cast were Frank Lovejoy as Joe, Joan Banks as Marion, Sarah Selby as Mrs. Bankner, and Van Wright as Rafferty. Also heard were Paul Fries, Harry Bartell, and Gary Merrill. Special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are on a small ship off the coast of Borneo. In the waters beneath you lies a fortune in pearls. And at your side stands a man from whose murderous greed there is no escape. Next week, we escape with Floyd A. Nelson's exciting tale of reckless men and their lust for treasure. Seeds of Greed. Goodbye, then, until this same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. It's Christmas time. Lots of mistletoe, lots of packages, lots of carols being sung. And never a man to overlook a chance to celebrate, George Burns gets into the act with a special program of what he claims are Christmas carols. George's sponsor had certain ideas about George's voice a few weeks ago and fired him from the show. And tomorrow night, you'll learn how George's fellow singers and Christmas shoppers in general react. 
For one of the merriest of holiday shows, don't miss George's and Gracie's program on most of these same CBS stations this Wednesday night. Now stay tuned for Hit the Jackpot, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a small ship off the coast of Borneo and an exciting tale of murderous greed as Freud A. Nelson tells it in his strange story, Seeds of Greed. This is it, the romantic South Pacific. A languid lure of the tropics. A ship at my command to take me any place I might choose. A jeweled tiara of sky above and an ocean of emerald velvet below. To my left, the languid coast of Borneo. To my right, the Sulu archipelago. Such romance. Such gentleness. Such maddening, unbearable gentleness. Not long ago, I was a carefree little monument to failure, reaping the rewards of my college education and the atmosphere a hitch in the Navy had taught me to love and live. The waterfront. Maybe it's the atmosphere, maybe it's the people you meet, or maybe it's the margin you can make on the exchange of drinks with guys in port fat with sea pay. Take this guy Lee, for instance. An oriental little guy whose correct English told you it was adopted. I had him figured wrong from the beginning. Mr. Braun? Mr. Kenneth Braun? Yeah, yeah, that's right. My name is Lee. Lee Tse Tung, if you prefer. I don't. Uh, may I join you? Uh, sure, sure, Lee. Pull up a buck for a couple of drinks and sit down. Certainly. Here. Al, same thing here. Okay. Uh, what's yours, Lee? Nothing, thank you. I do not indulge. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks, Al. Sure thing. Well, Lee, I've got the bait. Set your hook. What's on your mind? You were pointed out to me as a man who knows boats. Just like the Navy. And also as a man who might be induced to gamble. Well, I can't contradict. But if you will pardon me, as a man who is more than casually devoted to drink... I can take it or leave it. At the moment, my mood says take it. Your health, Lee. Yes, but for that one failing, Mr. Braun, I could offer very interesting and profitable proposal. Mr. Lee, it is considered very poor taste in the Occident to proffer drinks with strings attached. A good day, sir. Oh, no, one moment, please. Forgive me. I was going to add a failing which we could overlook if it were to be... Controlled for a short time. I said I could take it or leave it. I am in the pearl business. Do you know anything about pearls, Brown? <laughs> yeah. An oyster gets a hold of a bad grain of sand, and he or she or it gets an ulcer. Bingo, a pearl. Perhaps we should take us up at another time. I am stopping at the Case Hotel. Good night, Brown, and come see me if you should uh, reconsider. Uh, okay, Lee, but don't wait up. I hate the warm feeling of elegance that takes me over after the fifth drink. I hate myself. I hate morning. 
Worst of all, I hate waking up without a little hair of the dog and not a nickel in the poke to supply it. Out of the fog of remorse came a stolid little oriental face. Yeah, yeah, there's a generous soul. Pearls, he said. Well, that should be a nice, substantial little proposition. Yeah. Maybe I am ready to talk business. Brown, I did not expect to see you. Come in. Oh, this is a pleasant surprise. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned something about a business proposal. Yes, I did. Um, hotel rooms depress me, Lee. Could we, uh... Go down to the bar and talk it over? Oh, certainly, Brown. If you prefer. I prefer. You mentioned something about the pearl business. Yes, Brown. I didn't think. That is, I thought that might have slipped your mind. <laughs> well, things aren't that badly. Uh, tell me more. Oh, we could be very useful to each other, Brown. I have the information and the equipment. You have the experience without which the equipment is useless to me. Yeah. We can turn an enormous profit in very short time. Uh-huh. I have just completed a transaction whereby I become owner of small ship equipped with certain scientific devices for probing the ocean floor. Sonar equipment. I believe that is the name. I hate to disillusion you, Lee, but you can't bounce an echo off an oyster. It'll never work. <laughs> that is not my intention. Well, then how does sonar equipment fit into the pearl business? These pearls, a great fortune in pearls, are all in one package. Ours, for the taking. Salvage? Yes. I fell heir to chart upon the untimely death of a friend. On that chart is indicated the position of a vessel sunk during the war somewhere between the Sulu archipelago and the northeast coast of Borneo. Yeah. I have reason to know that on board at the time of the sinking was the personal fortune of a certain sultan, as well as the assets of his constituents. There was one survivor. And you hope to locate that vessel with this sounding gear? I do. Well, uh... What about getting the stuff up after it's located? I also have diving equipment. And you want somebody who knows how to operate the gear? Precisely. What's your deal? Uh, I am prepared to offer you one-fourth of any treasure we may locate. Uh -uh. For that consideration, I could offer about one-half of what I know about your equipment. I don't understand. For a 50-50 share of any loot... I could offer 100% cooperation. Oh, I see. Bron, you are shrewd. It surprises me you are not more prosperous. All right. 50-50, as you say. All right, you've got yourself a boy. To you, partner. Uh, now, one for the road, and we'll go look at your ship. Okay, partner? Okay, partner. Lee's stubby forefinger pointed a great circle course across the harbor to a little tub laying with her forward quarter scraping paint against the can of her mooring. She was from the orphan fleet of subchasers pressed into service out of desperation during the war. About a hundred feet, built to roll on a twenty-foot beam. Some dreamer had her rigged for fishing. She still mounted an A-frame, outriggers, and a cargo boom aft. Lee didn't speak of her with the pride of an owner. There it is. The one with the blunt end toward us. Well, when can we go aboard? I have the papers. We can take possession immediately. What kind of shape is the power plant in? I'm really not qualified to say. I know nothing of ships. But I am sure she will need work before we... What is it you say? Cast out? Yeah. Well, give me two days to work over the plant and I'll have her ship shape and shaken down. If she's standard, she's got two six seven ones on the generators and two pancakes on the main plant. A couple of spare injectors and some bailing wire will see her to Timbuktu. You will need a crew, won't you? An inexpensive crew. Yeah, a couple of hands to do the dirty work. We could get by with one if you could take a turn at the wheel. Perhaps I can learn. Yes, perhaps I can learn to drive the ship. Good. I'll line up a hand. 
These waterfront bars are full of guys looking for a chance to go fishing. Oh, you seem to understand what I want, Brown. I will leave everything to you. You may reach me at my hotel. Okay. The next time you see her, she'll be overhauled, provisioned, and manned. So long, Lee. See you in 48 hours. She was in surprisingly good shape. The batteries charged right up on the generators. Her oil was clean and her linkage tight. I replaced a corroded condenser on the sonar gear, pressure-checked the diving suit, and put new pistons in the compressors. One straight 24-hour shift, and she was shaken down and ready for a crew. I set out to meet my man on common ground. I found him being escorted out of Casey's bar by Casey himself. You young hoodlums are a disgrace to the sea. You'd better get some salt behind your ears before you start something in my place. Now get along with you. And don't be coming back. You brother of a pig! (laughs) What's the matter, sailor? Slippery deck? You be quiet or I stick you. All right, stow the ship, kid. The jails are too full now. I'm going to kill that pig. Get out of my way. All right, stay out of there, kid. And stow the knife. Still get that fat pig someday. You're uh, you're new around here, aren't you? How'd you know that? Well, you wouldn't tangle with Casey if you weren't. Where are you from? Ensenada. I have papers. In my room, I have papers. I didn't ask you. You didn't ask me either. But I'd advise you to get rid of that knife. With a temper like yours, you can cut yourself off a life sentence. So far, this knife knows only the blood of fish. I have never been kicked by a fish. I can use a man who can handle a knife. You working? No. Come on, I'll buy a drink. All right. Now, what's your name? Costa. Then you, Guillermo de la Costa. Okay, Tony. Two double shots later, I had my man. A pathetic little guy with no roots in a barren world. I sent him to stowing provisions while I cleared the paper and gold braid department of the Commerce Building and picked up a couple of hundred fathoms of useless shark net to flake out for effect. Then I called Lee. He was impressed. You have accomplished a lot in very short time, Brown. You must have worked day and night. Yeah, I can sleep underway. Where is your crew? Below. He's stowing provisions in the galley. I see. Does he meet our um, specification? Exactly. Good back with not too much above it, except a nasty temper. Good. He thinks he's going fishing. Uh, that explain these nets? Partly, Lee. Also, there's an unwritten law of the sea that gives fishing craft a wide berth. Clever, Brown. Very clever. Practical. Is everything in first-class condition? Everything. The diving gear is tight and the sonar readings check right on the nose with the charts. Then we are ready to cast off? Anytime. Then let us go. Head her out west-southwest, Brown. Right into the sun. Right into the sun. In just a moment, we will continue with Escape. But first, Groucho Marx, Bing Crosby, Dr. Christian, and George Burns and Gracie Allen will be back with you tomorrow night on most of these same CBS stations. Al Jolson will join Bing in another of their unparalleled exhibits of wit and song. George Jessel will be the special guest of George and Gracie. Stay tuned to CBS for this wonderful midweek Wednesday night listening. And now we return you to the second act of... Escape! Three weeks at sea taught me a lot about my friend Lee... His switch from landlubber to competent mariner was too fast to be convincing. Something about the whole setup spoiled the taste of my whiskey. The only way it figured was that he really did need me to operate the gear. Beyond that, beyond that, the picture changed. From the first day out, he showed too much interest in the sonar equipment. Ron, I think it might be prudent if you were to teach me the operation of this instrument. Is it very difficult? Just their operation. Oh, it's something anyone can pick up in five or six months of full-time instruction. Surely not to learn just the operation of it. Well, it's not only complicated, Lee, but delicate. I think we'd be wise to keep it secured until we need it. Perhaps. Yes, perhaps. It won't be very long, Brown. Uh, When are you going to break out the charts with the position of the stuff? In due time, Brown. Well, I'll need it when we start taking soundings. Then you shall have it. It wouldn't be prudent to surrender a chart 
that I have been forced to defend with my very life, would it, Bron? I get your point. I might add, Bron, that the chart alone is useless to anyone but me. The exact position is not indicated. I took the precaution of committing it to memory, lest the chart should be uh, misplaced. The only value of the chart is that it indicates sounding lines. That makes your position clear enough. Uh, what about Costa? Do you think he might be dangerous when he finds out what we're really after? For a man to be dangerous, he must first be intelligent. Costa is ignorant, he will stay ignorant. Sooner or later, he's going to get wise. Fortunately, Costa is not equipped to get wise, as you say. He is happy in ignorance. We will not expose him to the curse of greed. What's your plan? To turn the wheel of fortune to my own needs. We must be practical, Brown. A person such as Costa leaves little impression on the world. He will never be missed if he were to uh, disappear. Faith will save him from the curse of greed. The late afternoon of the 22nd day, I saw Lee's methods put into practice. Cold, efficient, ruthless practice. It happened so fast, I was helpless to do anything about it. Costa was splayed out on the nets near the stern, sound asleep, when Lee appeared from nowhere. Without warning, Lee let fly a vicious kick. Costa's blade flashed. Lee stood motionless until Costa closed. Then Lee grabbed Costa's knife hand and whirled, twisting Costa's arm into a lever and using the momentum of his rush, tossed him effortlessly over the rail to disappear in the swirling wake. Without even glancing astern, Lee gave me the arm signal for straight ahead, a signal that pointed accusingly at me, screaming, accomplice. His face was still frozen in trance-like serenity when he appeared on the bridge. It is now you and I, Brown. Yeah. These things are distasteful, but on the other hand, Brown, life itself can be distasteful. Oh, wasn't there some other way to handle it? Couldn't we have put him off somewhere in the island? Your whole life in too high esteem, Brown. We could have put him off at some island, but then, Brown, we would have had to wonder about his welfare. Now his troubles are over. He has peace. He no longer has to struggle, as you and I. He didn't have much chance to struggle, did he, Lee? He was not one to struggle intelligently, Brown. Struggling, not directed by intelligence, can destroy. Where does strength, muscle, fit into your theory? If you will pardon a personal reference, Brown... I long ago subscribed to the teachings of an Eastern cult which believes that the intellectual neutralizes the physical. Therefore, there is no difference in stature among men, only a difference in mental power. We do not destroy. We merely expedite the adversary's self-destruction by his own weakness. Costa's temper, huh? Exactly. One does not think in temper. He merely acts, and so destroys himself. Do I make myself clear? Well, not especially, but I'll think it over. Lee's insidious philosophy began to prey on my mind. I knew I was on the last leg of a one-way trip. I knew he was perfectly competent to take over the ship at any time, but I still felt reasonably safe. It would take two men to handle the instruments to locate the pearls, and beyond that, two men to get the stuff up. After that, I would worry about my failings and which one Lee would pick to destroy me. I eliminated the big one by tossing my last two bottles of whiskey overboard. We were cruising somewhere between the lower Sulu archipelago and the northeast corner of Borneo when Lee broke out a dog-eared chart of Dutch origin. Cut it back, Bron. Now, somewhere within the radius of this circle, our fortune waits to be taken. Now, let's see. The charts indicate a sandy bottom, and that's good. The currents go southwest. It falls off to deeper water to the south. I understand the charts, Brown. Start the soundings, man. Okay. I'll start here, at the 60-fathom line and work toward shallower water. You stand at the bow with a smoke flare. If I pick up anything, heave a flare over to market, okay? Uh, I prefer to stay on the bridge with you, Brown. Yeah, 
Yeah, that way we can watch the instruments and each other. Okay, partner. I worked each depth line half a mile from the point Lee established as center, staying parallel to the soundings indicated on the chart. Three times over the area showed nothing but a uniform bottom. Then I took a new tack. I set the wheel in a tight circle and secured it with a lanyard. I figured the current and the torque of the shaft would take us far enough off-center on each spiral that we wouldn't miss anything big enough to register. I was beginning to think in circles when the scope showed a fast drop and then wavered erratically. Lee must have read it in my face. It showed something, didn't it? We have found something, haven't we, Brown? Maybe. What are you going to do? Back it down and check it. Oh, no. No. Drop the anchor. We won't move. We'll take no chances of losing it. Drop the anchor. I settled her bow into the current, dropped the hook and backed her down on the scope of the anchor chain until we were over the spot. Lee expertly rigged the line from the cargo boom to the cat head and hoisted the heavy diving gear out of the after hold. His expression left no question as to the division of labor. Of course, you will make the dive, Brown. Yeah. We cannot risk losing a life when two men are necessary to complete this mission, can we? Not your life, Lee. Yeah, yeah, I'll go down there. But just in case you have any ideas about letting my weaknesses destroy me... Oh, come now, Bron. You're not falling prey to the curse of greed, are you? No. And I don't intend to fall prey to anything, if I can help it. You don't have faith in me. That's right. But you must have faith in me. We must work together. Until we locate the stuff and get it up. After that, Lee, only one man is necessary. That's what worries me. Hmm. Are you afraid, Bron? Does fear number among your weaknesses? Yeah, Lee, it does. I don't know how to reassure you, Bron. Do you have solution? Yeah, Lee, I do. My life is in your hands while I'm down there. Unfortunately for you, my life is the only link you have between the pearls and this ship. Only a fool would break that link, Brown. Lee's words echoed in my helmet as I felt myself being lowered from a sheave at the end of the cargo boom. Only a fool. I knew that I was pitted against a ruthless maniac that finding the pearls meant that one of us would die. Yet some power greater than reason forced me on, a power I recognized as greed. My weighted feet settled on bottom. My headlight sent a glaring shaft through the murk, serving only to blind me. Then my eyes adapted. Strange shapes darted in and out of the beams, splashing big shadows. I pivoted slowly, straining my eyes to the burning point. Suddenly, the beam stopped short and reflected upward in a blinding glare. There she lay, a slimy hulk sterned down in the sand. Her stack and superstructure eroded away, and her plates hanging scab-like from her frames. A death ship washed clean by gentle currents. I headed for the quarterdeck and leaned on the crumbling vestiges of the hatch. It fell away. My light picked up a single object. There it lay. Its corners worn round from shifting against the bulkheads. A teakwood chest. Brass bindings radiated from its single big hinge like the fingers of a giant hand. I felt a wave of desire grow into a surge of greed and resolve itself into an overpowering lust. I bent a line onto the chest and signaled Lee to haul me up. I felt as though I was threading my life away as I paid out the line that would link the treasure with the surface knowing that only Lee's ignorance of what the other end held ensured my shedding the heavy diving suit safe on deck. That would put us on even footing. I lost the fear of Lee's methods and thought of my own. Methods based on greed that knows no compromise. Methods of killing to keep. Then my fears passed. He couldn't kill me until the chest was on deck. Lee was like a man waiting for sentence when I climbed out of the diving suit. Well... It's there. Describe it. Describe it, just. Solid wood bound in brass. Is that all? Brass hinges, like a hand. That is it, Brown. The hand of Muhammad. My reward at last. The hand of Muhammad. You mean our reward. Of course. Our reward. 
For a brief second, we were two animals standing at bay, eye to eye, appraising, each waiting for the other to move. Then, as one, we saw through the cloud of greed. We still needed each other until a chest was on deck. Lee swung the boom inboard while I reeved the line attached to the chest through the eye of the sheave. He took the running end of the cat head and made a turn, his narrowed eyes fixed on me, waiting for the signal to haul away. His hands turned white, bloodless, as he gripped the line. I gave him the signal to haul in the line. Start it easy, Lee, and take it slow all the way. We'll stop it at the surface to keep the weight off the line. The line threaded through the sheave endlessly as time while I strained to catch the first glimpse of any bulk in the water. Again, I felt the surge of greed I'd experienced below. Unconsciously, I drew my sleeve across my mouth. A dark and distorted mass showed beneath the surface. Slow it down, Lee. She's showing. Slow it down, Lee. Slack off. You'll break your line. Slack off. Lee was out of control. The heavy chest lost the buoyancy of the water. The strand of the line snapped and shot a ragged end up to the block. But it was too late. The chest hit the block and the line snapped, crashing the waterlogged wood against the ragged metal of the topside. Brass fingers of the giant hand opened grotesquely, spewing a shower of tumbling beads over the surface of the water. Oh, you fool! You American fool! There they are, Lee. Look at them float down. Your little white seeds of greed. You will die, you idiot! You felt the pearls at the end of that line, Lee. They were in your greedy little hands and you couldn't let go. You couldn't slack off on the line. You couldn't let go, could you? So the hand of Mohammed sowed the ocean with little seeds of greed. You will pay, Brown. Pay with your life. All right, intelligent one. There are no odds. Pick a weakness and destroy me. Take your choice. Come on. You will die, dog. He came toward me slowly. Then he drew back, right foot poised. I was ready for it. But instead of the kick, his thumb shot out at my eyes, pushing jagged nerve ends right into my brain. Blind instinct told me to swing while I knew where he was. You will die. Not yet, Lee. Oh, I like that, Lee. Ducked by a blind right fist. And this, this, how do you like this, Lee? How do you like my thumbs? Uh, how do you like a mashing into your master throat? Uh, you're getting weaker, Lee. Weaker. Oh, where's your metal power now, Lee? Gone, is it? Uh, dead. Tropical Pacific. Gentle Pacific rocking me to death in a cradle of rusty steel. Maybe it's spring or summer or day or night. The breeze is gentle, sent to soothe, and my eyes no longer pain. Yeah, it's gentle. Such gentleness. Such maddening, unbearable gentleness. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Seeds of Greed by Freud A. Nelson. Featured in the cast were Gary Merrill as Brown, Ben Wright as Lee, Bill Conrad as Casey, and Tony Barrett as Costa. Special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are sitting unarmed in an early California boomtown saloon. Across the table from you is a man who has just murdered your brother and who holds in his hand a new and terrible weapon from which there is no escape. Next week, we escape with an exciting tale of the California gold camps, as Les Crutchfield tells it in his gripping story, The Pistol. Goodbye, then, until this same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. Groucho Marx, and who will quarrel when you label him a very funny fellow, will be back on most of these same CBS stations tomorrow night with his deliriously wonderful quiz show, You Bet Your Life. You'll find Groucho's unlike any other quiz you ever heard. So join us on CBS tomorrow night for You Bet Your Life, starring Groucho Marx. Now stay tuned for Hit the Jackpot, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS. The Columbia Broadcasting System.
Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape one week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.